when Melanie's character, Kathleen, says, well, kids die, Henry. They die all the time. The way she said it, all the time, like, you idiot. But then, you know, you say cut and you walk over and she's just Melanie again. Like, I came into her, I'm like, man, God, Kathleen is cold. And she said, she's got to be the Vindita. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2023 Emmys race. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and joining me this week for our final episode of Emmy season, I have back here EW Editor-in-Chief Patrick Gomez, and for the first time on the podcast, well, and I guess for the last time this Emmy season, uh, Senior Movies Editor Nick Romano, though readers may also know him for uh so much of his fantastic coverage of lots of TV shows and fandoms like uh, Game of Thrones and and House of the Dragon, uh, the Star Trek universe, um, and just like that, which just ended. Nick has been all over that. And then in movies, that you know, all over the DC films and, and so much other stuff. So, Nick, it's so great to have you here. And hello, Patrick. I will also shout out Nick's uh, voice you might have heard on West of Westeros. Yes. If you are an EW podcast uh, mm-hmm. completist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And now's the time to catch up on House of the Dragon season one. If you haven't already, just saying season two is still filming. You're trying to be a, an Emmys completist. Yeah. You gotta. You gotta check it all out. Uh, well, Nick, so glad you're here. Uh, and, and you're here for very good reason, uh, because uh, on today's episode, uh, we have The Last of Us showrunner Craig Mazin. By the way, I need to throw in a little disclaimer that that interview is organized through his personal PR team in accordance with WGA guidelines. Um, Nick did that interview. And um, among the things that you guys talked about was how much they were able to prepare season two before the WGA strike started. What did, uh, give us a little tease of what he revealed. Yeah, so season two is all mapped out. Like there's a full outline. It's been written and filed to HBO for approval. Um, Craig Mazin, who wrote a lot of the episodes for season one, he also wrote the script for episode, season two, episode one, and that's also off to HBO for approval. Um, he basically said he finished writing that script pretty much like down to the minute that the before the strike happened. Um, and he kind of brought it up in relation to a lot of the, you know, actors, writers, crew members who are sort of struggling financially through these strikes. Um because because we have the outline and the scripts, like he was saying that a lot of the below the line talent are still able to work, still able to get employment through this pretty harsh, stressful time. Um, and he was really thankful for that. But yeah, so there was a pretty significant, significant amount of work already done on season two. I have to imagine if you are a writer on a show, which you're not supposed to be, of course, doing any work right now, but there there have got to be days where like, a line comes to you or something comes to you and you're just like, it's okay for me to jot this down so I don't forget, right? Because I would forget everything, uh, you know, over, over the three, four months that it, uh, you know, the, these strikes have been going on. That's allowed, right? They can make a little note in their phone. Who would know? <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah. Who's who's really going to investigate? Um, but I'm so excited for that show to come back. It was such a, I don't know. I think it's kind of fair to call it a surprise hit earlier this year because so many um, video game adaptations with which this one is not 
we should call it inspired by the video game and not an exact, uh, you know, adaptation, but they don't often perform well. And this one captured everyone's attention for for so many reasons. Um, Patrick, what do you what do you think it has going for it? Well, fantastic writing and mm-hmm. uh, fantastic acting. I mean, it's just it's a good show. Just because something's based on something popular yeah. doesn't mean, in fact, a lot of times I, I would imagine that you end up making decisions that streamline things because they're just like, well, the audience is going to show up because the audience is going right. to show up. I think that this sh- uh, this show didn't take uh, any of that for granted and it shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Nick, Patrick mentioned that it has great performances, uh, specifically uh, Pedro Pascal, Bella Ramsey are fantastic. Uh, there are also several guest nominations, Nick Offerman, Murray Bartlett, Melanie Linsky, um, specifically talking about uh, Pedro and Bella, because they are, of course, all over this show. Um, they are nominated for lead uh, actor and actress. Those two, the 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 relationship uh, that they form at the center of this series is so vital and it really could have failed if people did not buy into uh you know what we were seeing between the two of them um what was what was the sense that you got did you did you feel it pretty quickly that audiences were like oh these two like this is kind of next level because of them i really think so and i think it's you know i keep thinking back to the fact that The Last of Us, I mean, well, first of all, everyone was trying to figure out what would be the new Game of Thrones. And for yeah. a long time, we're like, maybe the new Game of Thrones is Game of Thrones. Maybe it's House <laughs> yeah. of the Dragon. But House of the Dragon really didn't, as you, as we all saw, like yeah. really didn't perform that well in terms of Emmy nominations. And I feel like after the Emmy nominations came out, I feel like The Last of Us is really the new Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, both of the leads of the the new Game of Thrones come from Game of Thrones. Um, and, you know, Game of Thrones was Bella's uh, very first professional acting experience, and they brought a lot from that into... Which is bananas, because they are so good on that show. Yeah. So good. So freaking good. Um, just that spunk, that energy... Um, just the quips, everything uh, they brought into this performance as Ellie on The Last of Us. But honestly, I got to give it up to the writing and the story. Like, well, first of all, I'm also like so happy that non-gamers know what I'm talking about now when I'm talking about Joel <laughs> yeah. and Ellie and The Last of Us. Yeah. Um, a lot of my colleagues included. Uh, my hand is raised. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like there was a reason like the video games themselves were so popular because the story was just so solid. and. Regardless of sort of the interactivity of video games and the player putting themselves literally in the character's shoes, like the story was just so emotional. Um, It just reverberated down to your soul. It brought up so many ethical, moral, philosophical questions about what it means to be human. Um, Mm -hmm. And it just resonated with so many people. And so the fact that the audiences in a TV setting are having the same reaction, I think is really just a credit to the story itself. Well, so, uh, of course, The Last of Us is an outstanding drama series nominee. Uh, Also, uh, House of the Dragon, for all of the nominations it didn't get, it did also land in this category. The other nominees are Andor, Better Call Saul, The Crown, Succession, The White Lotus, and Yellow Jackets. Uh, It's worth noting that HBO is its biggest competition. It has four of the eight uh, drama series nominees. Um, I think... If it was still competing in limited series, White Lotus would be a lock there. But now that you have that here, 
I think it's kind of down to White Lotus, The Last of Us, and Succession. I think we all kind of know what might win, but let's go with through a little exercise here, guys. Why do you think White Lotus could win this category? Patrick, I'll start with you. I, as, as much as some of these other shows were significant cultural moments, I, White Lotus really became just the memes and the uh, cosplay <laughs> and the i think also just like the location like yeah. that show had a moment and i think also because a lot of people found season 1 right before season 2 so mm-hmm. even though season 1 was celebrated i feel like there were a lot of people that didn't catch up on it until season 2 was coming along mm-hmm. so i think it was just like there's there is that momentum there and the cast is obviously large and um impressive and well well uh, represented in the nominations lists as well uh, but i'm just sad that andor's probably doesn't have a shot here because i actually think it was the best show on this list i'm going to say it nick is nodding his head you agree well i w- i would say andor is definitely the best star wars series we've gotten so far um oh, no shade well, yes, it definitely <laughs> it definitely wins that award um I, I think maybe that's also why I put it, I, I say that maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know that it's the best. Maybe I should reword that in that it was the most surprising. Mm. Like, so that it gets extra points. Like everyone knew succession was going to be on this list. Everyone yeah. knew um, house of the dragon and the crown and even better, better call Saul. Better yeah. call Saul. Uh, White Lotus. I'm glad yellow jackets got nominated. I mm-hmm. think season one was stronger than season two. Um, but uh, I'm glad that, it is getting its due now because it wasn't nominated for season one. Um, so I, I think the last of us and Andor kind of get the underdog mm-hmm. vote for me a little bit of just like, yeah, mm-hmm. like they, they were able to break through uh, in a way that I, I don't think a lot of people were expecting. Mm-hmm. Nick, is there a, anything that you could point to specifically where you think that white Lotus is the one that could sneak in and take this? I mean, I think when I think of White Lotus, I think it's probably the most well-rounded of all of the shows in the Outstanding Drama series. It's funny, it's dark, it's dramatic, it's got cute, memeable, TikTok-y, friendly quips. Um, the performances are solid, the story is strong, there's social political commentary, cultural commentary. Um, I think it just checks a lot of boxes. Um, and also, you know... We think sometimes to, you know, what uh, the Television Academy kind of looks to in terms of standout scenes or standout moments that they can kind of point to to defend their vote. You know, these gays are trying to kill me. I'm sorry. Yeah. That is it's still <laughs> reverberating through my brain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And they got so many acting nominations, like Patrick, like you said, as did, of course, Succession. Uh, so that, uh, I think most people think that's the one to beat. Um, Nick, I will start with you on this one. Why could Succession win? I mean, I just think it's appropriate in terms of, even if, even if for argument's sake, there are better shows in this category, it's the final season. It's kind of just a big cultural coming to an end conclusion. And I, I feel like television academy voters are going to honor that Mm -hmm. in very similar ways that they've done to a lot of past series like um i can't remember if game of thrones won best drama for the final season but like veep and all these other kind of big heavyweights that you know finally got another 
chance at the you know the statuette in their final run yeah uh game of thrones did in fact win for its final season because that was the big everyone was like what for that season for the for the mess it did yeah i i i think with succession it's just look white lotus had fantastic performances but their their bench was not like people with like one line in this season of succession mm-hmm. deserved Emmy nominations. Their bench was so deep. The writing was so good. Um, and that was a story that I think could have wrapped up. It could have fizzled. And that show just was like crackling to the very last moment. And so I, I, I do think we'll be seeing them on stage at the end of the night. Yeah, uh, you know, there are a couple categories where there could be surprises. I don't really think it's going to happen here. But, um, you know, I, we've said that with uh, with a lot of TV Academy members being on strike, that a lot of them might actually be sitting down and watching the shows this year and not just going off of what they kind of culturally knew or what's, you know, happened the past few years. Or that they had t- time to watch. Right. They had they time to. Anyway. Yeah. So um, maybe. Who knows? Um, I, I don't really think so, but um, it uh, it'll be still a fun night when it finally happens in but January. Yeah, I, would be, I would be happy. Look, all these shows are good, are very, very good. Every single one of them. Uh, but I would I would be legitimately happy for like half of these to win. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because they all had such outstanding seasons. Um, Well, if uh, anyone has not voted yet, uh, today is the last day of voting, this Monday, uh, August 28th. Um, So if you're curious to hear more about The Last of Us, that interview with Craig Mazin is coming up. Nick and him discuss. uh, They also discuss Easter eggs, uh, whether new characters that are introduced in the show can make their way over into the video game somehow. And they also talk about the ongoing strike. So there is a lot to come uh, about The Last of Us in that interview. So don't go anywhere. The Awardist will be right back. Welcome back to The Awardist. As I teased before the break, EW Senior Movies editor Nick Romano sat down with The Last of Us showrunner Craig Mazin. A very uh, deep-reaching interview about that show and things that are going on in Hollywood. So uh, let's not waste any more time. We'll get right to it. Craig, are you ready for me to throw out all of the burning questions I never got to ask you in season of this show now? (laughs) I I, I didn't realize there were any unasked questions from you, but this is very exciting. I can't wait to hear what they are. I'm ready to go. Well, the first one, it's not necessarily about The Last of Us, but it is about something Melanie Linsky told me, which is that you threw some badass mafia parties over Zoom (laughs) during the pandemic how elaborate did they get? I, I want to know all the details about this. <laughs> so they were not only incredibly elaborate for mafia, but they were incredibly elaborate for anything. I don't think I've ever done anything that complicated. And I'm including writing and producing The Last of Us with that. So when you play mafia, there are lots, there's like the usual things. You're a townsperson or you're mafia. And then there are the little things. You're a detective or a doctor. And then we had like, Basically, every single person had some special role because there are all these variant roles. And I created a Google spreadsheet to manage all of it round by round because it was that complicated. Uh, And Melanie and I ran it. And I have to say, if you can 
run a complicated mafia game with somebody and come out on the other end still loving them as much as you did when you started, it means they're a great person. She is a great person. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Now, did Melanie play a character in Mafia that made you think she could play Kathleen in The Last of Us? I've seen Melanie play every possible character in Mafia, I think. And the scariest thing is when she's Mafia. Because not only will you never know, but you also don't want it to be true. You just can't, you just don't want it to be true. It's like, it's why The Exorcist is such a great film. It's about the corruption of innocence by evil. And she is, you know, an angel. You just don't want to believe it. Um, and yes, that's, it's not as direct as I was playing Mafia with Melanie and thought, ooh, I know what I'll do. But here I have this character who is doing terrible things. And I, it's just important to me, and I know it's important to Neil, especially as we create new characters, that we never drift into black and white. We just don't live in that world of black and white morality. Everybody is a human. Everybody has a reason. There are no just pure psychopaths. Even the character of David is dangerous and bad, but complicated. So I wanted somebody that was going to be completely committed to killing not only people who didn't deserve to die, but even children. And then I wanted us to kind of understand and love her and feel pity for her, even as we hated her. Well, who else is going to pull that off except Melanie Linsky? And that's how I I just called her and I said, Melanie, I would like you to play a war criminal. (laughs) Uh, Wait, (laughs) hear me out. She's like, but I don't think I'm not really the criminal type. And I'm like, no, no, you are. You can. You are. And she was. It was amazing. I'm obsessed with this story. I'm, I'm, I know you, obviously, you and Neil are so tight. I'm so curious. Like, do you think there's a reality in which a character like Kathleen that you guys created for the show could appear in the Last of Us game somehow, even in like this multiplayer online thing that Naughty Dog is working on right now? It would require a lot of legal stuff, <laughs> you know, because the characters that we create for HBO would then need to be somehow re-licensed back, I guess. I don't know how any of that works, but probably not. I think we like the idea that these universes stay somewhat separate. I mean, obviously there's overlap, great overlap with the storylines and the and the main characters, but it's good to like to live in a world if let's say one day there's a let's say there is a Last of Us part three. And please, headline writers, I have no inside knowledge on this whatsoever. I'm just <laughs> guessing. I'm I'm hoping. Let's say it happens then I would want Ashley Johnson to be voicing Ellie, presuming that Ellie would be in the game. I'd want Laura Bailey voicing Abby. But um, as we know, Ashley Johnson doesn't play Ellie on the HBO show. Bella Ramsey does. So these two universes ride side by side. I think probably uh, we wouldn't want there to be too much of a feedback loop. It keeps both things somewhat pure. I think that's totally fair. Another kind of question I've always been curious to ask you because I'm obsessed with Easter eggs. And when we're, we're talking about Melanie, Melanie's husband, Jason Ritter, has a surprise cameo in this season. And I'm curious, are there other Easter eggs, however subtle or overt, that fans still haven't been able to find or still haven't pointed out, but that are like very clear to you looking back over it? Um, wow, that's that's a good one. Uh because um, they find everything. They find things that I, I aren't there sometimes. Sometimes they're like, look, do you realize what this means? 
you see uh, like there's a and we're like we didn't we wish we were that smart there's a shot of um lamar johnson who plays um henry and he's looking out through this like little transom window and across the street he's seeing joel shooting at these guys and there's a reflection in that little transom window from a sign across the street that's a bit orangey reddish and it's sort of going across his eyes and people are like look they've mimicked the orange across sam's eyes and now they put it over henry's eyes through reflection and i'm like no (laughs) no that was just there (laughs) but thank you um that's cool uh i wish i could take credit for that um so they find easter eggs that aren't even easter eggs and i feel i feel uh ashamed but I don't think we put anything in that they haven't found. Mm. People are fast. We thought maybe, maybe it would take, maybe people wouldn't really understand why we made this like goofy little thing about biscuits in the first episode until they heard the explanation in the third episode. No, no. <laughs> I think episode here is Sunday by Monday morning, there was a flower theory already circulating around the internet. I was like, shit. That was fast. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite Easter egg has got to be the Uncharted lighter that we see on mm-hmm. Tess. Um, yeah, is there that's a good one. is there a particular Easter egg that you're particularly proud of for being in the show, or that w- just completely astonished you that you know the production crew just kind of did it on their own, and that like shocked you know you. they were they I am. Uh, I don't want to say that I'm a control freak, but I am everyone that works for me on the show understands that I'm very detail oriented. And I also have a lot of hard opinions about almost everything, um, which is a little frustrating for them because sometimes they're like, well, are you okay with this? And I'm like, "Who? why would you? I don't care about no one's going to even see that. And then they're like, but you get so fussy about everything. And so I'm like, okay, fair question. So everything that would be some sort of intentional Easter egg gets run by me. I mean, I'm aware of all those things. So there's nothing that I was not aware of that came from the crew. It's usually us suggesting, hey, we want to do this or that. I actually don't love Easter eggs in general as a concept because they're meta. And I think they can pull you out of things. And I can think they, I, I think they sometimes drift out of the emotional and into the intellectual. And that said, they are fun for people. So the kinds that I like are not even Easter eggs as much as notions that get carried through like the idea that flowers the substrate that carries cordyceps into humans but of course you know a little giraffe here and there a little giraffe stuffed animal isn't such a bad thing and the naughty dog logo on captain kwong's keychain and these these little things are are really more about just letting the fans know that we're fans too um the other things aren't really easter eggs as much as just i love them from the game like you know the movie posters and um, the kind of weird cinematic universe of, you know, Viper. And I, I mean, there's just like a lot of, you know, there's like a lot of things I just love from that world. My favorite Easter egg connected to anything Last of Us actually is in The Last of Us 2. And I, I don't think I can duplicate it exactly because it just, it's too embarrassing. And Neil wasn't even aware of this. Someone who works for Naughty Dog was a big fan of Chernobyl. And towards the end of production, when they were like finalizing things, there's a moment where you find this archery trophy is a character that you encounter. Spoiler alert, he's now a clicker. And his name is 
uh, Boris Legasov, which is a combination of Boris Shubina and Valery Legasov, the two main characters in Chernobyl. So when I saw that, I was like, what the fuck? So, so I took a screen, I took a photo of my TV and sent it to Neil. And he goes like, Neil's like, yeah, I, I actually did not know that that's what that was. <laughs> somebody just, somebody just got it in there. So love that. Uh, one particular, I, I, I don't even know if you would call it an Easter egg because I don't even know if it is an Easter egg. I just remember this, uh, the little kid um, in episode one who shows up to the Boston QZ and the soldiers have to kill him because he's infected. And he's credited as Logan Pierce. And my first thought was, is he related to Jeffrey Pierce, who plays Kathleen's right hand man? Nope, uh, he's not. Um, fairly a common name. These things happen. But interestingly, the the stunt double for Logan was the son of the stunt double for Pedro Pascal. So when he, you see him in the distance, kind of going, thud, uh, that's um, Pedro's stunt double son. Oh, my God. See, this is this is kind of thing I need. This is the kind of thing I've been yeah. craving to know all season. <laughs> Denton Edge is the, uh, is the stunt, uh, stunt double for, for Pedro. And so I'm like, Denton, look, uh, this is your boy your kid i'm gonna be nervous about telling you that if he falls he needs to fall harder or anything like that and he's like yeah you're not gonna to have to i'm gonna tell him to fall harder <laughs> like that's how it works in stunt families he's like yeah <laughs> if they don't if it doesn't look like it hurts i'm gonna tell them to do it again <laughs> okay uh they're special people i love it i mean now in terms of all of this um all of these new elements that you incorporated into the show um, I'm so curious to know if there was anything from your conversations with Neil or the Naughty Dog team that like, maybe they were experimenting with putting something in the games initially, but it didn't make sense, but you could mm. kind of put it into the show. And it made me think of, you know, that, uh, campfire sequence with Joel mm-hmm. and Ellie, which is based on concept art. I was curious if there was anything else like that, that you were able to incorporate into the show. Um, I don't know if there was anything specific and even that really was more of a confluence where it seemed like there was a good idea to have a scene. And I think then Neil was like, Oh, I should show you this, you know? Um, and I was like, Oh, there it is. You know, like oftentimes these things were kind of just living in parallel as opposed to feeding into each other. But yeah, we would talk all the time where we would have a discussion. He would like, well, you know, we were going to do this or we we're going to do that and we'd have time or it just didn't fit. And, and I think in general, none of those things ever were like, oh, well, let's do it, except for um, the story of how Ellie was born. That absolutely was one of those things where I was just asking questions and he's like, well, here's how that was, you know, what that was supposed to be like. And I wanted to do it as a comic and I want to do it as this. And I just never had a chance. And that was one where I said, okay, well, that's, that's going in the show. <laughs> I mean, that brings me to my next question, which is about, you know, in the games, you can learn so much lore about The Last of Us through scraps of paper, notebooks, letters to loved ones. They don't necessarily have an impact on the game, but it it just gives you that knowledge of this larger world. And I think it's, you know, it's very clear that, you know, you picked certain ones for, you know, Kathleen's story arc, um, for the origin of Ellie and Anna. Are there other ones that kind of surprised you as you were looking through all the material that you're like, oh, I really want to blow this out or I want to expand this in a little bit. You know, you're, the, the, the one that was the most tempting was the story of Ish and how he 
helps create this underground colony. We didn't really have space to tell that story, but we did want it to be present. And I think it was a good choice. I think obviously for fans of the game, when they see Joel looking at that drawing of, you know, our protectors and saviors and ish and so the guy, we know, okay, as game players, we know exactly what that is. And I think most people who play the game and take the time to read things understand this the the sorrow of that whole story. But um it kind of worked om- for the show, I think it worked better as just a sense of ghosts that something had gone wrong. And that the, because to me, emotionally speaking, what was saddest to me about that sequence of the game was not the specific story of, well, there was this colony and then the infected came and they had to shut themselves in a little room and eventually just, you know, kind of group suicide to avoid being infected. The sadness of that game was just the remnants of a school. That was the part that just felt the sense that there was joy there, that kind of fun, colorful, childlike joy of crayons and art and soccer goals drawn on the wall. And people had fun here. People laughed and you can feel it, you know? So that was what I wanted to preserve more, I think. Also, there is a, there's a kind of tonal grimness that you can experience in a video game that is a little more palatable than when you experience it watching it on television. And I think the reason why is you choose when to look and when to not. And you can sit with it for an hour and think about it and nothing else is happening. You are far more in control of the sadness that you experience, but not so intelligent. In television, you have no control whatsoever, which makes those things more powerful and it can also make them far more upsetting. And we at that point have done quite a lot of things that are deeply upsetting. So we have to be a little bit more careful, I think, about how much we dump on people, especially when we know that by the end of that particular episode, there's going to be another child who's dead and there's going to be a suicide. Well, probably we should probably let that have its own space. And then in comes Melanie Linsky to tell us all on Twitter that that acrobatic clicker girl was from Ish's camp. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Uh, I mean, I, that was, I love the fact that uh, Cynthia Summers, our costume designer, put her in that Blue's Clues t-shirt. I, there's just something so horrible about that. But Melanie, Man, I, I wish people could have seen it. was just so much fun to see her be so like one of my favorite lines in the whole series, uh, rather, or season one is when Melanie's character, Kathleen, says, well, kids die, Henry. They die all the time. The way she said it, all the time, like, you idiot. And, and but then, you know, you say cut and you walk over and she's just Melanie again. And I, and I like I came into her. I'm like, man. You, God, Kathleen is cold. That is rough. And she said, she's got a bit of a vindita. <laughs> and I was like, she does have a bit of a vindita. She does. It's a bit of a vindita. <laughs> Even like Melanie's appreciation of Kathleen was very sweet. She's got a bit of a vindita. <laughs> Love that. I'm going to loop that audio and that'll just yeah. be my ringtone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's got a bit of a vindita. <laughs> Um, was there a particular aspect of, well, I'm sure there are many at this point for you, but of The Last of Us lore that particularly fascinated you when you were developing the show? Because you've done like really creative things with just how clickers work and how infections spread. Um, 
and this hive mind situation that you guys created? Like, was that kind of high on your list? It was um, a lot of the early stuff we talked about it with there was before you dig into the all the emotional goop that's at the heart of these stories and at the heart of any good drama. You want to know that your feet are on solid ground because I, you know, coming out of comedy, uh, nobody appreciates the value of logic more than I do. And the value of logic and storytelling is not so that it can survive uh, examination by uh, geometric proof. It is so that people don't stop and pay attention to the wrong thing. Because when you want them to be focusing on this, if they're thinking, but how did they get there? Or wait, that wasn't there or that shouldn't matter because of blah, then they aren't looking at or feeling what you want them to be looking at or feeling. So a lot of the early discussions with Neil were very much these kind of hardware discussions, science, facts, timelines. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we decided to not carry over the notion of spores as a common method of transmission, because it just seemed like once you, in, in a video game, you can really just live in that visual world of we go into space, the spores are self-contained. Once you get out into live action, it's just, first of all, doing the spores is difficult. But that, that aside, we don't mind difficult things. Um, the bigger issue is just, do we believe it? Now that we're looking at it in reality, do we believe that these spores aren't going to just go everywhere? Because if that's how they spread, if it's airborne, I'm not sure anyone's left. Um, so. That became an interesting discussion just of transmission. And that led back to some of the discussions we had with mycologists about the nature of fungus and how it moves through a body along these mycelia, these strands. And that is not to say that you'll never see a spore. Um, It's just to say that, you know, as a general method of transmission, um, at least as far as the characters we've met know, there are no spores. Not yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was important for us to kind of dig into the nature of that and how that functioned. And then also to talk about how it might have started, because that wasn't really something that they had dug into too deeply in the game. And I thought there was an interesting opportunity to go back, and this is what inspired the beginning of episode two, to A, Show us somewhere else. You know, the game is so nailed to your perspective as the player, as Joel, and then as Ellie for a segment, that it can't go anywhere else ever, but we can. So taking us back in time and putting us in the shoes of a scientist in a different country, speaking a different language, um, confronting the reality of this and how it might have started, I thought was really, it was an interesting opportunity. And obviously the opening sequence of the first episode, which was... I think literally the first thing I wrote of anything, I wrote it like really early. That was about going back even further in time to say, because I have a, look, I have this thing where when there are these terrible events that occur in movies, I don't like the fact that we just happen to show up in our movie right before the terrible thing just happens to happen. I, I, it just feels so like, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting to say, in a Chernobyl sort of way, this was always going to happen. This was inevitable. People even knew it was going to happen. They'd known for years. We're not showing up, and then it just suddenly happens. We're showing up, and it finally happens. Uh, 
I think it's important for people to understand that when we are warned about things, that means they're going to happen. <laughs> and we've struggled with that to the extent that a drama can help drill home the fact that an inevitability is inevitable. That's a good thing. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very clear that the way you structured this season, there's a very clear beginning, a very clear end. But like how far in advance, like, or how far in the future, like, do you have to think? Like, are you kind of setting pillars or do you ha- like have things mapped out like, like deep, deep, deep sort of in like multi-season mm. arcs just with this sort of expanded world and how many games we have and yada, yada, yada. Just curious about your process there. Neil and I are both mappers and outliners and planners. We believe in endings. We believe in knowing where you're going. We know where we're going. We also give ourselves space inside of the basic route to wander and discover and invent. And as that happens, we then can go and reincorporate and fiddle with and go back in the writing. What we don't do is write narrative checks that we cannot cash later. There is this thing that happens sometimes where people will create mysteries that are tantalizing infuriating, we, which we love. And then later, just never kind of pay them off, which is cheating um, because it's exciting. It's exciting when something that, like a magic trick, something happens and you're like, well, how the hell did, what does this mean? And then as it turns out, uh, it means that they wanted you to be excited at the end of that episode. It doesn't mean that they know why either. That's very upsetting and disappointing. Um, we don't do that. <laughs> we, we really, we, I refuse. Um, so when we, have any kind of confusing, mysterious, or shocking story element. It's purposeful and it will be understood. But that said, I I do feel like we also give ourselves spaces to wander around. And that's why sometimes, you know, when you're writing episode five, you may go, oh my God, and race back to episode one and fiddle with something to make it connect in a beautiful way. Obviously, there are big things going on in our industry right now. Um, But I'm curious how much of season two you were able to map out before everything kind of happened. We were able to map out all of season two. And I also wrote and submitted the first episode, the script for the first episode. And send it in around 10.30 or 10.40 p.m. uh, right before the the midnight and the strike began. Uh, which was helpful because it gave some of our department heads, I mean, we haven't really crewed up completely, but, you know, as you're getting ready to mount a production of our size, you want to have your kind of, particularly think like production design and scouting and stuff, or really early stuff. You want those positions in place so people can get started. And, and that was helpful because the outline which was submitted and the script which was submitted are giving some people work to do. Which is nice. I, the, to the extent that we can keep anybody um, below the line working, that's fantastic. But uh, now at 100 days in, um, I think it's becoming essentially uh, a, a near certainty that we won't be able to start when we were hoping to start, which is upsetting. We are all raring to go. This is what we are born to do. This is how we've not only choose to live our lives, but I believe are compelled to live our lives. Otherwise, why the hell would we do this insane job? I can assure you, it's not for money. Anybody who thinks that people do this for money, they're, they're just wrong. <laughs> uh, no. 
Um, that's not why we do these things. I mean, it's nice. Money's nice. Don't get me wrong. We don't do them for money. What we do this for is, I believe all of us, all artists do this to express ourselves, which is a specific kind of human drive. And we also do it to be understood and heard. And part of being understood and heard is being respected. What this strike is about is, and people think it's about dollars and cents, and dollars and cents are incredibly important. People need to pay rent, mortgage, healthcare, feed their families and themselves. It's also about respect. Um, and actors and writers are on strike right now because the terms of our collective bargaining agreements no longer reflect any kind of respect or appreciation given the realities of how this industry has changed. And when you look at what we're asking for, I think it's important people understand this. The collective bargaining agreement that the Writers Guild negotiates is called the minimum basic agreement. And the most important word there is minimum. What we are negotiating for as a union is a minimum level of treatment. Minimum. I am aware that in my point in my career, like many showrunners, I'm not being dealt with on a minimum basis. And to that extent, I'm very fortunate. But there are so many people, and as our industry has changed, increasingly more people who are only dealt with on a minimum basis. And the minimum is too minimal, and it needs to change. So I believe it will. I think that the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild will prevail. Of course, you know, like anything, we're not going to get everything we ask for. But I think we're going to get what we need. And I think that uh, the writers and the actors will stay out on strike until they do. I don't see either union uh, just throwing up their hands and saying, oh, well, you know, look, 100 days is a long time to strike. I've done it before. Here we are in day whatever it is, 101, 102, I don't know. I don't sense any fatigue as a community. I just sense resolve. There's anger. Uh, and there's frustration. From my point of view, there's also just complete confusion. I don't understand what these guys are doing. I really don't. They could end this within 20 minutes and feel almost no economic pain, certainly far less economic pain than they're currently inflicting upon themselves. So I, I, I just, I'm, I'm baffled. But then again, I don't need to understand why they're doing what they're doing. I don't think it's not our burden. It doesn't matter. Our only burden is to stick together until the companies finally do not even what the right thing is, but the minimum until they do the minimum. And then we'll go back to work. And on that day, I will be so fucking happy because <laughs> this is what I'm, this is why I'm here. Well, for what it's worth, I don't think AI could write an episode that got as many Emmy nominations as you guys did. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope not. Uh, yeah, we, we did all right there. I, I'm particularly proud of how well we did for a first season of a show. That's, that's pretty rare. You know, perennial uh, Emmy King uh, Game of Thrones, I don't even think they had a single Emmy nomination their first season. It, it, it takes a while for the Academy to come around to genre shows typically. Um, and we're about as genre as it gets, but they, they saw us, you know, they saw us. And I was particularly pleased at how they saw our, so many of our, our cast and so many of our crew. I mean, that's, that's the best part to me. Like, I love that. I love all these and, you know, nominations for everyone from the most seasoned professionals uh, to kids. 
And that's just heartwarming. Uh, if you can do that your first season, it really doesn't matter what happens on the actual night of the awards. It doesn't matter if you win a single one. If you can get 24 nominations as a, as a freshman show, you can declare victory and enjoy some champagne. <laughs> I love it. Well, Craig Mazin, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. This has been such a treat to pick your brain. Thank you, Nick. Always a pleasure. Well, okay, here's one thing I've got to say that is sticking with me there, because uh, Melanie Linsky, I think, is so freaking fantastic on this show. I'm looking at the nominees in her category. Uh, it's all The Last of Us or Succession um, nominees, and I think she might actually win this one. I think she could, too. Yeah, I, I think it could be hers, but um, that's such a funny story uh, that he told there, Nick. Um, but those Easter eggs, I did not realize how far-reaching they are. They are so far-reaching, um, and... I mean, I kind of, I said it sort of in the interview. I definitely use this as an excuse to ask Craig all of my burning questions that I couldn't, yeah. have, I didn't have the chance to ask him throughout the season. Um, but one mystery that was kind of lingering in my brain um, stems from the first episode where there's that little kid who walks up to the Boston quarantine zone. We don't really know who he is. He, they, the soldiers welcome him in. He turns out to be infected and they kill him. He's listed in the credits as Logan Pierce. And I always thought, oh, is this guy connected to Jeffrey Pierce, who's another actor on the show, and he's an original The Last of Us voice actor? No, he's the son of Pedro Pascal's stunt double, which I thought was kind <laughs> of cool. Uh, it's not like a, technically yeah. an Easter egg, I guess, but it's just a really cool connection that I thought came up. Uh, well, see these things that that's we gotta we gotta ask the questions because who knows uh, what kind of fun little uh, tidbit will come out of that. Uh, well, Nick, thank you so much for doing that, and uh, to both of you guys for being here. This is our. Our final episode. What a great one. But we'll be back. We will be back. Yeah, we will be back. Of course, uh, you know, we would have had another episode coming up where we offer up our predictions. But with the with the Emmys being moved to uh, 2024, we will have those predictions in January before the show. But of course, uh, we will have more awards coming up. Uh, we're going to take a, a break for uh, a few weeks. At the end of September, we will be back for a, a whole new season, um, specifically Oscar season. Um, so we will be diving into movies, and I suspect that these two guys will be back on here with me. So, um, so thank you guys for being here, and thanks so much to all of you for listening. If you like what you're hearing here on The Awardist, you can follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We're at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. Thanks so much and see you in a few weeks. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>